It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gap Fest for April 12, 2019, the Wahoo edition. The Gap Fest is live at the Paramount Theater in downtown Charlottesville, Virginia. We're here as part of the Tom Tom Festival. We are a few blocks from the campus of the NCAA men's basketball champion, Virginia Cavaliers. I. Point, they won. Uh, excuse like me, they Mr. Won. Mr. Mr. Chairman, point of personal privilege. It's the grounds. <laughs> Spoken like he's, the pedantic he, <laughs> alumnus that you are. He's going to make me pay for that later. So I wore my UVA colors just, just in honor of the evening. And we are, of course, in our own small ways, champions of the hardwood. I'm, of course, David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. But let me introduce the true superstars of the GabFest team. At forward, standing five feet, ten inches tall, from New Haven, Connecticut, a woman who routinely dunks on Justice Kavanaugh. A woman who would never, she would never take a charge. Why take a charge when you can go to trial? Is Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale Law School. And at shooting guard, standing six feet, one inches tall, the philosopher of the free throw line, a graduate of the University of Virginia, maybe an honors graduate, don't know, not sure, a native son of the Commonwealth, John Dickerson of CBS This Morning. On this week's GabFest, the arrest of Julian Assange seven years after he sought asylum in the Ecuadorian embassy in London. What does that tell us about journalism, spying, free speech, asylum? Then we will be joined by the New York Times' columnist Jamel Bowie to talk about the purge. The president has dumped almost everyone who works on immigration policies. Does this herald a wave of even more brutal exclusionary policies at the border? And then the 2020 race, we will assess the state of the Democratic race for the presidency, especially the sizzling hot candidacy of Pete Buttigieg. Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter. Did I pronounce his name right? Was it okay? Yeah, just think boot edge edge. The word edge pronounced twice in a row with emphasis on boot. So Buttigieg. Buttigieg. Yeah. Buttigieg. Julian Assange, the founder and eminence greasy of WikiLeaks, was arrested this week at the Ecuadorian embassy in London where he had sought refuge and received refuge for the past seven years. Assange was immediately tromped off into the British justice system, which is holding him for jumping bail back in 2012, but appears to be ready to extradite him to the United States, where he will face, for the moment at least, just a single charge of trying to help Chelsea Manning hack into a Defense Department computer. 
So, Emily, why do you think Assange lost his protection now? I mean, it sounds like he was just acting like a big jerk in the Ecuadorian embassy, and they got tired of him skateboarding all over the residence and scuffing up the walls and not cleaning his bathroom, honestly. Yeah. It just sounded like a small place. I hadn't really thought about that idea, that he was just in a small building, um, imagining himself in a much more grandiose fashion, holding press conferences from the balcony, messing with American elections. The Ecuadorians think maybe he was messing around with their political system too, but mostly it just sounded like he outwore his welcome on hospitality grounds. He also, they, he didn't clean up after his cat for a while, which yes. as a cat owner, I can tell That's you that is, that is a grounds for expulsion from any <laughs> embassy or home. John, I mean, obviously Assange... I mean, the big problem with Assange, he's not an appealing man. I mean, one of the big problems with Assange is he's not an appealing man. He's, there are these rape allegations that were issued against him in Sweden. He is just, he's clearly a narcissist. Uh, he is unpleasant. Um, but, you know, sometimes unpleasant people have just causes. Do you, do you get the sense whether his cause is just and more appealing than he is? Well, it depends where you draw um, that line and whether you can draw the line. I guess what we should figure out is what we, what we think as journalists about the material that he helped uncover and the role he played in it. Uh, because a lot of the material that was uncovered um, told us something about what our government was doing that we never would have found out uh, otherwise. And on the key question of whether the means, basically whether the ends justified the means, and particularly about, for me, that means torture in the, in, um, of prisoners and renditions. Um, that was important information to know that was being done in our name. But what interests me, and I want, I want to know what Emily thinks about this, is the fact that with Chelsea Manning, Assange actually, well, is alleged to have helped Manning. And does that, is that what crosses the line in terms of are you just a conduit from information that's being leaked that's, uh, you know, you can make a case that Americans should know about what's being done in their name? But I think also, by the way, there's obviously a case that Americans shouldn't know this, and somebody can make that, and if nobody will, I'll try. Um, but the question then, I guess, Emily, is, um, is he a publisher or is he a journalist? What is he? Right. So that is one fundamental question. Do, does, he, does what he's doing fall under the rubric of journalism in the way that journalists should automatically defend him because any indictment of him is a threat to free speech to all of us? And I think what's so hard about evaluating that question, so first of all, there's Assange's checkered career. Um, we're only talking in the indictment about um, his actions in 2010, long before he was involved in some way with Russia influencing the American election by publishing the materials that were hacked. Right. But this indictment has nothing to do with that. And a constant career of basically covering for Russia in a number of different ways. In addition to messing with our election, he's basically... On yes. Team Russia. So, yeah. so I mean, is, well, that's the, I mean, so is the is there a worthwhile distinction between what WikiLeaks did in 2010 and what it did in 2016 or 2017 or 2015? And I does that so. matter? I think it does matter. I think there is a distinction. I mean, and I would definitely argue that the materials that Chelsea Manning published through WikiLeaks in 2010 were of public interest and that we deserve to know them even though she broke the law and went to prison for revealing them and Assange did in some way help her and so then another question we should talk about is whether it matters in talking about 
the implications for press freedom, that he was indicted under the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, not under the Espionage Act or not under some kind of direct threat to the First Amendment. The idea the government said he had was guilty of or they were charging him with hacking. Then when you look at the indictment, the evidence of hacking is that when she said she had no more materials to give, he has this line like curious eyes. When Man- Manning said she had yeah. no more materials to give. Yeah. Right. Manning said she didn't have more material to give. Assange said curious eyes. Well, something or other. It's a great phrase uh, that she should keep looking, in other words. And then the main accusation of him actually doing something is that he tried to help her break a password. But there are two related details that matter to me. One is that um, he, she was trying to change her username so she wouldn't be identified. In other words, that password wasn't to help her get in to further to the system. It was yeah. so she could shield her identity. And I think there is an argument that for a journalist who's trying to protect his source, that should be allowable behavior. Um, And then the second thing is we knew all these things in 2012 when Chelsea Manning was on trial and the Obama administration decided not to indict Assange despite these facts. Can I just add one thing to the moral calculation about the Manning material, which is that wasn't included in the Manning material the names of interpreters in the Taliban who were helping the U.S. and he published them despite being asked by human rights and they died as a result so that like... Not good. I don't. Th- I think it's. I am interested in the case about whether he is a journalist, whether WikiLeaks constitutes journalism. I feel like the act. Of, I certainly when the Guardian or or I can't remember who the what New York the, Times, the New York Der Times cooperate and Der Spiegel cooperated with WikiLeaks and took and processed and spent time fact checking and analyzing materials and redacted that materials. So is that that's clearly journalism. journalism. But when what WikiLeaks is doing, which is to be a conduit for information that it is not checking, that it is releasing, um, releasing without any kind of thought or care to protect the lives of, of innocents, and when it's acting as a, effectively an agent for a foreign government, as it has uh, with Russia over the this past several the years. This is post-indictment behavior, yeah, just to be clear. Sure. Then I think there's a, you know, as much as I, as much as I am a, am a, a, a free speech advocate, it, it is a troubling Position. I do not think that what WikiLeaks is doing is the same as what you do or what you do. I don't. Because and they I, don't fact check. They're not evaluating. They're merely. They're like the river that the information. And the river and their river and they're willing to be. They're willing to be recipients from the worst sources and willing to to act as puppets for for governments that are that are malevolently trying to undermine other governments in the world and particularly our government. And yeah, when you think of the Chelsea Manning revelations, they were important for shaping international debate about the behavior of the American government in a way that many any journalist would be envious of having played that role, no? So isn't this at the point where somebody talks about the fruit of the poison tree? So can you... Um, <laughs> you love that phrase. No, that yeah. it's not phrase. a Fourth Amendment case, but go No, no, but isn't, isn't the fact that... Metaphorically. The, but the fruit, is, which is what you're talking about, is coming from a poison source. So yes, it's helpful. Well, wait, I'm now arguing against who's what the poison. Assange he's the poison. Yeah, because okay. he's operating. We've now come to learn, and also based on the original choices he made about the information that he had and the people he could have protected, um, he's making choices that are uh, poisonous. And therefore, while some good may come from what he releases, the poison overrides that. Right, but I mean, you can also argue it the other way that even if what he's doing doesn't fit 
perfectly into the rubric of journalism. It has a lot of the same effects that we want journalism to have and that it's a mistake to abandon him in light of the thinness of these allegations that he actually so so just to lay out the legal framework for a moment since that's my job um so journalists it's a question the journalists have no great immunity under the first amendment like we th we think we do we claim that and no and the federal government has very rarely gone after us in any way shape or form in modern times so we sort of imagine that mantle we don't really have it and yet the trump administration did not charge him with spying um, they charged him with, you know, computer yeah. fraud and abuse as a way, I think, of making journalists feel more comfortable. And it is true that journalists do not have any right to break the law in news gathering. We don't. Like, you know, the important Supreme Court case, which is called Bartnicki, says that you can publish um, a recording you obtained illegally, but the Supreme Court was very careful to say, if you're the one who went and stole it, that's a different ballgame, and we're not protecting you. And what if you help the person steal it? No, you bought him the tape recorder. No, not allowed to help steal. Okay, here's a question. Sorry to interrupt you. What if you create a uh, digital device that allows a person to drop off bad stuff, makes it easier for them to drop it off, a Dropbox that's cyber this is and that so they don't get caught? What Good it, question. I mean, I would argue you should be able to do those things. And I also think you should be able to help a source change a passcode, a password to uh, protect their identity. If, but on the other hand, if Assange had been helping break a password in order to hack into the, de the DOD, the Department of Defense computer system, that would strike me as going too far. What, what, what rules do we have? What are we supposed to do? Because I'm thinking suddenly now about the 2016 election and Marco Rubio used to say, when asked questions about WikiLeaks uh, emails from Hillary Clinton, he would say, I'm not going to talk about them because they were they were gotten in this ugly way. Uh, and even though it would help my party, I think that's a bad idea. Should the press there are a lot of people who believe the press should never have touched those emails from WikiLeaks and talked about them. So if that's the case, then why should the press have talked about anything previously that WikiLeaks? So you mean people who well, think the 2016 materials, the press should have stayed away right. from. So then how do you justify the 2010 well, you, materials? Thank you for putting my question in materials. English on different grounds, which is that they were, it's the 2016 materials were the, essentially the private correspondence of, of citizens engaged in a political campaign. It was trivia, it was theft of personal materials and trivia, whereas the other material, the 2010 material, was material which directly related to public policy being carried out, the most serious matters of life and death and public policy and the public deserve to know in the same way we deserve to know that the Pentagon Papers. But it's just, I do think there's such a huge distinction because they are not, they did not perform the transformative acts of journalism. And and the, the shit that he released, which endangered people's lives, was irresponsible and wrong. And that is not, that is not journalism. It is something else. It may be in the, the world's interest, but it is not journalism. And I, and I, we should not associate ourselves with him. I feel nervous about that because I feel like it's so, I mean, Assange is so detestable. It's really tempting to just want to get as far away from him as possible. Like, I take one look at him and I feel that way about him. There's just nothing about him. Do you think him. Joe Biden wouldn't get a little handsy with him? It's like far creepier. You don't, yeah, you, don't no. find, you don't find that Dickensian beard alluring oh that he was God, arrested in? Oh my God, it's awful. But I always thought he was like yeah. clean-shaven yucky. Anyway, I, so it's really tempting to just say, he is not us, we are not him, let them put him in prison. We don't have to worry about this because we don't help people break the law. 
I wonder, though, about the precedent this will set because he was disseminating a lot of information in 2010, which I would I mean, Yes, I absolutely see the problem with putting people's lives in danger. I don't mean at all to be looking past that. Um, and I'm not quite sure what to do with that, fitting into my theory of this. But um, but I do think overall, we don't want to be um, prosecuting journalists for publishing information, even if it's a government secret, if we deserve to know it. And that's a really subjective standard. Um, I do think it's different. Thank you. Uh, I do think it's different from private hacking in a campaign, which was obviously designed to influence the election. You, so just to wrap this up, do you guys think he, Assange will end up spending a significant amount of time in an American prison? I do. I mean, they're going to fight over What's, extraditing him for years. That's yeah, go why on. is that going to take years? I'm not. It just seems to be a really involved proceeding. Um, the British can hold him for 12 months for jumping bail, and then presumably they could extend it if they're still wrangling over the extradition. But who? Who's the? Who's the? Is it a barrister? I mean, is it the, the British legal system that holds up? That's going to take a long time. Yeah, it's the extradition agreement between the United States and the UK, and whether it applies to him and how it applies to him, yeah. and whether these kind of charges fit into that. That's all going to go on for a while. And, you know, it's interesting to think about the extending of time as a matter of politics in itself. It will matter who the American president is as this all plays out. One last thing. I had a thought as I was seeing the picture of Assange, you know, moving on in his life. He has a new stage to play on, and he was getting obviously really bored and antsy right. in the Ecuadorian embassy. I wonder if, I mean, it was not that different from being in jail to be under house arrest like that. I wonder if there was a part of him that was kind of ready for attention in a different way. He can be a martyr now. One final last point about attention is that the, the, the current president mentioned WikiLeaks 141 times during the campaign, including saying, I love WikiLeaks. His vice president, Mike Pence, tonight was interviewed by uh, CNN and said the president didn't mean it. Um, uh, love, can, love can be so fleeting. Um, anyway, so I wonder about... Did you have he, a question? You just want to make no, that no, no. joke? <laughs> No, I mean, he obviously loved WikiLeaks. He benefited from WikiLeaks. And he loved 2016 WikiLeaks. Right. He didn't and think through, I think, how he felt about 2010 WikiLeaks. Well, but he's... He loved the wrong WikiLeaks. I yeah. know, it's so true. I mean, that's the other part of this is Assange is in trouble for, like, the best thing he did, not the worst thing. But isn't it the president's administration that, that is pressing this case against yes. him? And, and then how is that happening? Well, it's very revealing that they're pressing the 2010 case and they have not opened the door to learning anything about the 2016 case that a lot of us would like to know. But isn't that really weird that you're like opening the, the like smaller door and there's this huge, big, like medieval really Game weird. of Thrones door? Yeah, it's weird. And it's also particularly striking given that the Obama Justice Department had looked into this, seriously considered indicting Assange and decided not to. So you're reopening a decision the previous administration made, which is not a particularly partisan decision and going the other way. Meanwhile, leaving the big door closed, just like you said. Slate Plus members receive bonus segments on the GabFest and other Slate podcasts. And tonight's Slate Plus segment is going to be our Q&A with the audience here at the Paramount Theater in Charlottesville. Go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. 
Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. So for the rest of the show, we are going to be joined by one of Charlottesville's very own, Jamel Bowie is a columnist for the New York Times, our former Slate colleague. Welcome back to the GabFest, Jamel. It is also, I might add, Jamel's birthday. David to announce that? If it was my my birthday, I wouldn't want David to say that. And we got him this lovely purple rug, which he'll be able to take home. I can't wait to use it in my apartment. (laughs) I keep waiting for our dog to come out and lie on it. (laughs) Just the Gabfest dog. I could see your dog liking that rug. We could have a Gabfest dog? That would be terrible. We could share the Gabfest dog. It would only exist on Thursday mornings (laughs) when we tape. It's the purge in Washington. The president, presumably egged on by his anti-immigration brutal sidekick, Stephen Miller, is chainsawing through the entire apparatus that enforces immigration laws. Homeland Security Secretary Kirsten Nielsen, she who cages children, was cashiered for not being brutal enough. The ICE nominee, the nominee to head ICE, was withdrawn for not being tough enough. The DHS general counsels in the crosshairs. The USCIS head is marked for execution. The Secret Service director is on his way out. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Meanwhile, we are hearing news of, of astonishing new and even worse policies. So, Jamel, why do you think the president is targeting these folks who have helped him create one of the most morally despicable immigration policies this country has ever seen, yet are apparently not morally despicable enough? Right. I mean, that, that is the striking thing, right? So Kirsten Nielsen uh, goes on national television last year, says we're not separating children, clearly are, is through her time at DHS a very aggressive enforcer of the president's immigration policies. Um, no questioning of what he wants to do. And despite all of this, the president criticizes and needles her constantly and the reason seems to be that she won't break the law, that she'll go as far as possible, which, mind you, includes separating children from their families and rounding up people in camps. But she won't break the law, parenthetical, we should probably change the laws. Um, and that, that isn't enough for uh, the president. And so I think what we're seeing is that President Trump has an idea that he should be able to essentially have almost absolutist control over the immigration system and wants to, uh, is taking steps to replace officials who recognize it's not the case with those who will bend to whatever his will seems to be. And that, that may or may not be successful, right? Because there are, there are laws and there are, you know, down the bureaucracy, there will be people who say, my career, my future, or whatever, is worth more than trying to do this thing that is illegal. But it's, un- I think it's unclear what happens next as people are replaced and as Stephen Miller, as you mentioned, um, really takes hold of the administration's immigration agenda. Can I just pick up on what Jamel is saying? Now that I live in a building where there's an elevator, I'm going to try this metaphor out. So 
doesn't sound the, that promising, but go the elevator. You don't think it sounds promising? No, that intro made me a little concerned about your metaphor. Oh, okay. All right. Emily is on metaphor watch. Um, so uh, you go to call the elevator. The elevator, it turns out, is on the first floor, and somebody has the door open because they're loading it with bags. There is, and you press the button. Hold on. You press. I'm listening. I'm, see, I'm, I see thank God Jamel is here. Oh my he God, is Jamel right there with John. me. They had the cutest so, talk. Okay, <laughs> so, uh, anyway, so you're pressing the button. The elevator is not coming. You press the button another time. It doesn't come. You bash the hell out of the button. It doesn't come. You dismantle the button and you put in new buttons. It still doesn't come. This is what the president's doing with DHS. It's Congress that has to change the law. It's Congress that has to do. And so what he keeps doing is dismantling the button. He's pressing the button. He wants quick action, but there, but it is located in another branch. And this is another example of. Uh, but John, a, what Jamel said is that is the opposite, which is that he's 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 the elevator's there. He's like you know loading shit on it. He's he's putting children in it. It's. No. He's, he, he's enforcing, he's, he's created a huge amount of chaos by creating ad hoc policies. No. I mean, he's building a wall that he's not allowed to build. No, no, no. This is all his attempt to do things that he has only limited powers to do and that don't address the actual thing that is the problem. Well, he doesn't care about the thing that's the problem. Well, I understand, but you're standing there with the button. But, but, but the point is that he is dismantling and, and firing people and trying to put them in there. And it's just, he's just messing with the button. Like, it's not all his policies have done is actually encourage more people to come based on the reporting uh, that I've seen. In other words, uh, in the people in the various, in three, basically three countries are thinking, oh, the door's closing, you better rush. But the point and is that... And also, if I bring my child with me, I'll be able to get in. That, weirdly, is the message that seems yeah. to be transmitted. Um, but the point is that he is making all these changes. He's, he's, he's doing, taking all these actions that are, that are not going to fix the problem. I, mean, I think this it's a mistake of... to take him at face value. I don't think he wants to solve the problem. I think he wants to appear sure. like he's being tough, whatever that means, that he wants... He wants the problems to be in the courts. He wants to blame the judges. If it seems like someone who works for him, not a um, bad thing that it's a woman he's upbraided. Now he can seem like he's, you know, marching around trying to make things more dramatic and urgent when there's not. And meanwhile, there's actually a real crisis. Like, I don't think this is all because of President Trump, because the conditions in Central in Latin America are brutal right now. So I think we need to, I need to remember that, but there is a terrible humanitarian crisis on the border. Not that, you know, we still don't have the huge numbers we had years ago, but we have families crossing in desperate circumstances, not able-bodied young men who are looking for work. And the government is totally swamped and unable to deal. And a lot of Trump's moves have made things worse, like closing down the government, which stopped the immigration courts, and all these cases got delayed. I mean, there, there is a real mess that Trump is partially, if not completely, responsible for. And I don't think he has any way of... He, he cannot think and, his way out of this. Well, he, yeah, right. He, he, his, his approach to immigration as a problem is that there needs to not be any of it. And so the fact that there are re- there's a real crisis except in Norwegians Central America. And, right, except, except for... Except for... Yeah. Except for... Uh, yeah. Um, uh, but there's a real crisis in Central America, but, but sort of Trump cannot conceive of immigration in any way other than the way he does. And I think, I think John was getting to something kind of... In, 
important here, which is that kind of the paradox, this is an example of what I think is the paradox of Trump, which is he is an extraordinarily weak president. He does not know how to work his will on the federal government the way someone more effective could. And he's so not patient enough, right? He's not patient enough. He doesn't have the knowledge. He doesn't have the, I mean, he has none of the qualities that would let him, um, for example, do what Obama tended to do, right? And while using executive measures to sort of get like a half loaf, really appealing to Congress and the American people to try to get a legislative solution. He doesn't, he doesn't, he's not equipped to do any of that. And so in his frustration, he does destructive, chaotic things that only weaken him in his administration, but at the cost of like actual people's but, lives and livelihoods. But I think, but, but Jamel, I think Emily gets to a good point, which is that he he doesn't, in theory, maybe he doesn't want any immigration, but he actually really, what he really wants is to be the focus of attention, to create chaos, to, to cause his base to be excited. And so whether he's effective or not is, is almost irrelevant if he can make that part happen. I, I think the both policy. can be true. I think both can be true. I think that he being seen as weak on his signature issue is not something he's psyched about. And, and, to, the, and to the extent that he can look weak in, the, in some of these instances, I'm not sure he wants that. But having said that, he would like the turf on which uh, fighting takes place to be the immigration well, turf. Em- Emily, what do you make of the, propo- the proposal, which apparently was floated in the fall, to take migrants who had sought asylum and to dump them in sanctuary cities, in particular in San Francisco, or cities which had which were democratic cities, and which Trump. I just saw a headline today, which is Trump is apparently now talking about seriously again, even though his, his Homeland Security said this is outrageous, we can't do this. I mean, is that a legal measure? God, I mean, like it seems so crazy to say yes, but I'm trying to think what would prevent the federal government from designating certain cities. I mean, if, when you frame it like that, it seems bananas. But if you, if the government in, had some, well, if the government has a rational basis for choosing some cities and they could come up with a justification just as they did eventually for the travel ban, then yeah, we'd have the same problem of trying to look behind the veil of their decision-making with a standard that would be pretty low. I mean, the funny thing about that proposal, though, is that it's sort of, it's premised, so... <laughs> Part of trying to understand Trump is trying to figure out what is real and what is sort of just like propaganda or rhetoric. And in this case, the president seems to sincerely believe that the migrants are all sort of like drug dealing rapists. It might be good for San Francisco. Right, right. And so I'm going to dump all these awful people onto onto these sanctuary cities and then Democrats will see that they should have acceded to my demands. But in reality... These are just people who want to work and live and have decent lives. And so, in reality, what he'd actually be doing is sending a bunch of vulnerable people to places where they're more likely to integrate into communities that want them in cities that have opportunities, which is, in a strange, bizarre way, like what you would want to do. Right. I mean, one thing is obviously in the short term, you could create a strain on right, city right. finances. Yeah. But if you did it with any kind of rational planning, you could Wait, address so maybe those it's a great, So it's a good policy. Asset. Maybe it's a good policy. Well, if for bad reasons. Right. right. Like, like, it's, well, you'd also policy. need some money to come from the, from yeah, the federal government. Yeah, they would government, need some money in the short term. But isn't this just, this is bait. I mean, this is this yeah. is bait. We've taken it. Yeah. yeah. So we took it. Wait. Jam- but I yeah. want to. Yeah. Jamel, you you're let's say you're going to a wedding next weekend. You find yourself seated next to a middle-aged woman. She introduced herself. It's Kirsten Nielsen. <laughs> what do you do? What do I do? 
He goes to the elevator. <laughs> someone someone <laughs> tore that elevator up, man. <laughs> Can't get out. Your description of that elevator made me really wonder about the elevator that goes to your floor. <laughs> I, I don't want to ruin someone's wedding, right? So Jamel's polite. <laughs> No, I, that's why I asked Jamel. Jamel's right. a famously polite person. Um, I don't want to ruin someone's wedding, so I would just I would not sit at the table. I would encourage other guests at the table to not sit at the table. I would talk to people. No, really, I would talk to people and say, hey, hey, that woman over there, that, that woman uh, helped jail children. No one hang out with her, right? Um, I would do as much as I could within the context of this situation where, again, I don't want to ruin someone's wedding to ostracize this person. Uh, you're, Emily, you're on an airplane. You can't move tables. <laughs> you're seated next to Kirsten Nielsen. I, I mean, okay, but at this point, she's not in power. I mean, she's, her, certainly her legacy is separating children from families, right? Which clearly she's trying to paddle away from as fast as possible because the reporting, as soon as she was deposed was that she, you know, opposed it all along internally, which can I just time out? I always find those, those stories after someone leaves to be so curious. It's like, there are all these things that the reporters knew all along that they never shared, or there's some spin as someone goes on the way out. That's incredibly self-serving, but somehow gets reported. I, it just always strikes me as curious. It's like all of a sudden it's assumed that we all knew that Kirsten Nielsen all along was like fighting the good fight inside the administration. I didn't know that. I, I, the way I read the reporting was that it was it wasn't necessarily that she opposed the policy, but that she was worried about how this would affect her her, her post administration life. That like I think you could imagine a situation where Trump is the economy is doing well, Trump is much more popular. This doesn't like become a flashpoint, and I don't think near, I don't think Nielsen particularly is worried about it. Right? It's mm -hmm. it's because of the political weakness of the administration that this becomes an issue for her. Can can I just two other points which are. Uh, not necessarily connected, but which are on my mind. One is um, that this wasn't such a political winner for the president in 2018 um, when he ran a very specific campaign of saying Democrats are trying to let in these, you know, if you look at the last ad that was run about MS-13, which... Um, the racist ad, the blatantly the, racist ad. That was taken down from Fox as well as NBC because they said it was a racist ad, but which the chairwoman of the Republican Party said was a fair ad in which the president supported, that didn't work. I mean, this was a big election for the other and in places where... Uh, there were tight races in places where Trump had done well in the general um, and in, in, in some of those Midwestern states and in Pennsylvania, he had losses. So the theory behind this, which is that he wants to have this fight and conversation because it, it works for him politically, is questionable um, to me. But does he and have second, another play to run? I think he is like mean, he making plays like we used to, um, you know, in football, which is like designing them on his chest right before he runs the play. Um, but I think the other thing, by the way, about this purge and about the total dismantlement of this um, agency, um, it does other stuff too, like defend against, you know, terrorism and all this other stuff. So he's taken apart the, you know, the, 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 whether it's the elevator button or not, he's taken apart the entire apartment, right? Because the elevator button doesn't work. And, you know... There's other important that. stuff that needs to be dealt with by the, the Department of Homeland Security. Also, by the way, the, the safety of elections. And so this opens up a bigger hole than just on this issue. I have another concern, which is about the law of asylum, right? Which we've had all across the world since 1951, which comes out of the Holocaust, really, and the Second World War, in the sense that 
when people have a credible fear and they are refugees, they can come to your country and they can ask for protection. And you can decide they don't deserve it, but you have to let them in and give them some kind of due process. And, you know, look, that's an idealistic notion. And people in Syria don't really have that because they don't live right next door to the United States and they can't walk here. But the people who can walk here or who can get to Europe or other places that are asylum destinations have been allowed in while their cases are being processed. And the Trump administration is trying to make everybody wait in Mexico. A federal Uh, judge blocked that order. But there is this fundamental um, just utter unraveling of asylum law and America's role as a beacon of asylum that is underneath all of this. I'm just going to make a point that I made earlier, which is that I actually, I, I think there's something... I, I think there's something troublesome with the idea that you can walk across many different countries to choose to come to the United States and pick us as the asylum. De- I do not see why there's any problem with saying you have a credible fear in your home. You're in a country, Mexico, which is not your home. You've, you've transited hundreds of miles. Mexico is, a, you know, Mexico is not a country without problems, but the United States is not a country without problems. You, if you are avoiding your credible fear, you can avoid it here and seek asylum at the place that you've gotten. And I don't see why the United States automatically has to be the, the destination for people who get to, you know, they get to choose that. I think if you're saying that you're leaving your country because you fear for your life, then you can sate that fear in the first country that you come to, which is safer. Well, there are two issues with that. One is there are a lot of people who say they're not also safe in Mexico, that because Mexico also has, you know, a big drug trade and gangs, that that's not actually a safe destination. I mean, look, if we were rational about refugee populations and how to deal with them, we would have a system where all the countries in the world took their fair share where we thought about, okay, are you someone who might be able to go home sooner? In which case, you know, if you're from Syria, staying in a place like Turkey would make more sense because we can repatriate you. Who are the cases of people who really do need to go halfway across the world? We would have like basically a kind of rational lottery system and everybody would get to go somewhere and we but we don't have that system and so the notion to me that people should have to stay in Mexico because it happens to be one step closer when it's a much poorer country much less well equipped to take people than the United States which is not full right like we are not full where did this crazy I mean oh, oh. I live in Connecticut which isn't even that big and like we're really not full I'll add to that I think I think David you're you're Calculations complicated by the fact that the conditions in places like Honduras are the result of actions taken by the American government, right? That American intervention and action in Central America has helped produce some of the, 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 the forces that are driving people to leave the country. And so I think even if there is a more rational system that can be developed, and there is, I do think the United States has a moral obligation here because of our past actions to be more open to refugees from countries that we have a footprint in. I 100% agree that we have a moral obligation to be more open to refugees. I absolutely agree, I think, and we have a moral obligation to attempt to ameliorate what's going on in Honduras so people don't have to flee. What I'm saying is that if you're saying that asylum, the principle of asylum is you you have an imminent fear at your home, and so you were trying to allay that imminent fear, I think there's something weird and illogical and, 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 and screwy about saying you allay it by, by transiting a thousand miles when you could transit a hundred miles. 
and I actually think the fact that I, a liberal person who believes in, in you know, wide open immigration and much more openness to, to refugees, finds that problematic means that it probably is an issue that is more deeply problematic than, than I, folks are acknowledging I, here. But to get well, back to what John was saying, like this doesn't, um, the American public doesn't seem to be voting or supporting Trump or Trump-like candidates because of this, right? That like, that the, the broad public seems to see this crisis and their reaction seems to be, well, we should do something and not keep these people out. And I mean, what's your answer to, from the point of view of, you know, Mexico versus the United States, which country is better equipped to take a lot of people in? Like, wouldn't you want that to be part of your calculation? Not just that, like, Mexico happens to be geographically closer to Guatemala? Well, it's the same language culture. I mean, it's like people have much closer ties. It's, it doesn't seem to me, it doesn't seem to me that definitively the United States is a, is better equipped to take in someone from rural Guatemala than Mexico is. It doesn't. I, mean, it really I don't know, but it doesn't. I'm not sure. Yeah. Right. I mean, what you're really talking about is is it up to the person to get to pick the, the country of their destination? And worldwide, we've answered that question in a number of different ways in different contexts, and it really has a lot to do with like where can you go, right? I mean, when the Vietnamese people on boats came, we took. I think almost two million of them. I might be exaggerating, but over a million, and it was because they could get here. If they hadn't been able to get here, we would have left them in Thailand. I was struck that of a hundred thousand uh, credible fear interviews with asylum seekers, that the first level is whether you have a credible fear, and that seventy-five percent were were judged to have had a credible fear. Now the administration says that that uh, criteria is too loose, but still seventy-five percent—that's a pretty high number. And one other thing, though, that I think is really important, so I'll make the boring presidency point, which is think about the tonnage of presidential attention, time, and focus that he has put on this issue. And it is demonstrably on not the problem that is actually occurring. And that's an amazing misallocation of an extraordinary amount of power. He could have. He could have taken all this time and attention and pointed it towards what the actual crisis and problem is. And that's just... That's just a misallocation of the office. Hey, Slate listeners. I'm Christina Cotarucci, the host of Slow Burn, Gaze Against Briggs. I want to tell you about a special event we're doing at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York City on June 13th. To celebrate this new season of Slow Burn and Pride Month, we're hosting an exclusive live taping of the show with special guests, including civil rights activist and Black Lives Matter organizer DeRay McKesson, comedian and singer Esther Fallick, Eric Marcus, the host of Making Gay History, and Sam Fader, director of the Netflix documentary Disclosure, about the depiction of trans people in film and television. We'll dive deeper into this season and talk about the lasting impact of the Briggs Initiative and the continued fight over LGBTQ rights in schools. It'll be the perfect way to celebrate Pride Month this June with LGBTQ stories and voices across generations. Again, that's June 13th at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York. You can get tickets now at TribecaFilm.com slash slowburn. Hope to see you there. So we have a microphone up here. If anyone needs to announce their candidacy for president, <laughs> now would be a good time. Anyone, probably a couple of you announced today. Anyone here announced today? We actually have two fewer people in the audience than there are candidates running. <laughs> <laughs> 
really given up. There was someone on MSNBC the other night I'd never even heard of named like Swalwell. Swalwell, yeah, yeah. yeah. He announced wait, 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 wait. Like Colbert. He announced like, Colbert. That like show that's, you were on. He might have been you, on the very night you were on. Maybe that's right. I was so. It was confused. like of all the desperate thing, he, ways to try to get on the Colbert show. Like, he, oh, I'm going to announce for presidency. Night, I feel he like was on top of what yeah, was you happening saw that him, night. You saw him and you thought he was some intern. Um, <laughs> he's a congressman from, from California. Okay. So we're headed towards the largest field of presidential candidates ever. Uh, everything is quite muddled. You have, you have Sanders and Biden, who I guess Biden has not officially announced. They continue to sort of squat on the top of the polls, even though they're tremendously old white guys. Um, they're just ahead of, of Harris, who is not any of those things. Um, you have Beto O'Rourke, who's also in the top tier, although he has appeared to have done nothing to deserve that. <laughs> you have Elizabeth Warren. Elizabeth Warren is on like an amazing tour, <laughs> dropping policy proposals like she's like Stevie Wonder dropping albums in the 70s. And then, and then there's Mayor Pete. <laughs> Pete Buttigieg, the young, gay, religious, military veteran who has somehow captured most of the energy in the room. John, how has he done that? You've talked to him this week. How is he, why is he the darling at the moment? Well, I, I, I don't quite, I mean, I have some notions, but I don't really know. Because That's good, because you're a political analyst. Well. <laughs> right, but I'm, I'm trying to, I'm trying to keep the hot takes on kind of a simmer, you know? I'm trying not to, so, um, but I'm also, I haven't, you know, I haven't been, I haven't been out in the country the way I'd like to be able to fully answer that question. I did interview him. I spent a day with him in South Bend this week. So I have some preliminary notions, um, which is that he's, an, he's a very appealing candidate. He is memorable for a bunch of different reasons. One thing about the polls is just screwy and crazy is that with so many candidates, I mean, the polls should never, you know, we should take them with, with huge truckloads of salt, but in particular now, because there's so many candidates, can you imagine, like, do you do a poll with all 26? Do you do it with 16? Do you do 15? Are there 26? Well, it depends how you count. Do you include, do you include Biden? Do you include um, Stacey Abrams? You know, Mike Ravel. Um, Sorry. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. Um, Harold Stassen, he, he's probably still. <laughs> what? Um, that's a joke for people who are over sixty-five. Okay. Um, I didn't get it. The uh, and and political science major. Anyway, um, so uh, so anyway, he's he's memorable because he's got this really fascinating resume. He is he is very articulate about. Um, he thinks a lot about how the presidency would work and what his job would be. He's obviously also um, done this really interesting thing coming at Mike Pence from the left in a moral um, way that uh, people found quite appealing. Um, so, and, and oh, by the way, and his, um, his marriage, this is a, I interviewed him for a piece that's gonna air on, um, on CBS Sunday Morning not this Sunday, but next Sunday, and we haven't cut the piece yet, but the, the interview with his husband, Chastin, the two of them, talking about marriage, the role of marriage in a busy and chaotic life, how they cordon themselves off from the insanity, how they both are sounding boards for each other, Chastin's a teacher, um, in their lives, was one of the best conversations I've had, forget politics, about marriage and the roles we play and how we help each other out that I've that I've ever had with, you know, awesome. contemporaries. It was, it was a fascinating conversation. You don't expect that normally in politics. Um, so I think people find their marriage uh, appealing. So those are some of the reasons. So 
What do you what do you what do you think, Jamal? Why do you think he's? I, I think I think all that's all that's true. I think he's smartly been able to figure out what is what helps drive candidates in the modern sort of presidential cycle, and that is a kind of total transparency and openness. He takes he appears to take every interview that's asked of him. He's always he, he always he, appears he didn't to come be. on the Gap Fest. <laughs> we tried to have him, we tried to have him at our Austin show, but he was leaving town. So. Uh, he appears to be very candid. Um, he does. He is very obviously a, a deep thinker um, and someone who is sort of taking the problems at hand very seriously. He's willing to kind of put out big ideas uh, without hedging them, which I think really appeals to people. I think on part of the voters, right, if you take for granted that what Democratic voters are looking for most is someone who can beat Trump, then I do think that's acted as sort of a kind of... I think there's a degree to which a lot of voters are playing pundit and they're saying to themselves, who can win over, you know, blue collar whites? And they're looking at this young mayor from Indiana and they're like, well, maybe he can do it. I think that helps explain some of Biden's higher ratings. I think that explains some of O'Rourke's higher ratings that voters are sort of saying to themselves, you know, pretending like they're on a CNN panel and um, gauging politicians that way, which I'm not sure is really the smartest thing to do. Mm -hmm. I think that can really lead you astray because it's, to me, unclear what really can appeal to large groups of people. And I think actually Mayor Pete is is a good example of that. And I think that's why we have so many candidates is the party doesn't know, nobody knows what a candidate is supposed to be like, look like, what the job is. I think that's... Do you you think, John, that the size of the field, the size of the field obviously makes everything weird, but do you think it's the size of the field... Does it make the couple at the top, the, I mean, particularly Biden and Sanders, does it give them a huge advantage because, because they are ahead of the, and no one else can, can gather up enough uh, string to catch up to them? Or on the contrary, does the fact that they, they uh, haven't been able to scare anyone off mean that they're really weak? I mean, is it that are they relatively strong because there's a, strong, a big field or relatively weak because it's a big field? Uh... I don't know. I don't know because I'm also I'm just so uh, conscious of what. How do we determine their real their real strength? I mean, because polls at this point are are all name ID. So you think, well, of course they're at the top. Everybody knows them. But then you think, well, if everybody knows them, shouldn't Sanders be a little bit higher? But he's really doing well with money. So like, I think it diminishes I, all of them because it also it, just makes it seem sort of jokey. Like anyone can just yeah. throw their hat in the ring, and that there's. And how do you differentiate the top from the bottom? It just makes them all seem like well. I wonder whether smaller. I wonder whether we are going to have a moment here to Jamel's point, whether we have where we have like a red wedding, where basically the the Democratic Party decides that's enough. Goodbye. We're gonna we're gonna that was Bernie Sanders' gonna, wedding, I think. No, but we're just gonna decide like okay, let's get this down to it like okay. a baker's dozen. Um, um, and, and to Jamel's point about his, you know, how he's deeply thoughtful, um, to any of the Catholics out there, he used the Ignatian discernment process to decide whether he was going to run. The words, I was talking to a Catholic priest friend of mine who said, like, you know, he doesn't think the words Ignatian discernment have ever been used in, in the presidential context. He, qu- he quoted from Wolf Hall, from Joyce's Ulysses, um, so Graham Greene. So it's a, uh, it's a, because there was a time when you wouldn't even admit to those things. Right. That would have been deadly. Uh, so that's uh, part of his... I, I, might, I actually think 
we're kind of a weird period right now because there haven't been any debates. There have been these sort of occasional cattle calls and town halls, but there hasn't really been anything with everyone on the stage. And I think when that happens, candidates will start to distinguish themselves. People who may seem on paper or at a rally to be really sort of sort of dynamic and interesting may just fall flat on the stage. Um, and the reverse is also true. And so I'm waiting for that. I mean, I just keep thinking back to this time on the Republican side in 20. 15 the like the the guy leading the polls the guy who was like you know this guy has everything it takes to win the nomination was scott walker who dropped out like six months later because he ran out of cash um and that things can change so rapidly and quickly that and that's a great point and you know it was it was it was scott walker had you know presumably things going for him governor republicans were supposed to elect governors he'd taken on the unions which governor which republicans had always wanted and he'd been successful um you know he was from a swing state like he had it wasn't just because he was you know some pundits decided he had like on paper and then he was just disappeared this it almost pains me to say this because i just i like numbers and quantitative stuff but there's just something like some people have something and some people don't and we haven't yet been able to see who has who has it yet so i'm i will make you all a bet i'll make anyone in this audience a bet that biden is a complete paper tiger as much as i love him that that he once he faces reality that his support will completely vanish and my question is and i mean i think to 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 you jamel or to you wait wait Wait, no do any of us disagree with you yeah. Do I know? No. Does anyone disagree? Do I even know? No. So who, who get, I, that's, you didn't have to take the bet. It wasn't required. Um, I didn't know that you loved him. That's where I was. Stopped, well, no, I think, I mean, I, I find him a, a, a warm appealing person as we does, discussed. Does Michael Bloomberg uh, know about this? I know you're cheating. So, uh, but my question is who, when that support evaporates, who get? I, I kind of feel like whoever wins this race is going to be the one who gets that Biden support, and when it evaporates, and who is it likely to get that? You think it'll all go in one direction? I don't know. I feel I'm like just it's going to scatter to the winds among all of them. Can I ask the Leslie Nope question about Buttigieg? So, so can you um, tell the people who got the Harold Stassen joke who Leslie Nope is? Yeah, Leslie Nope is is in on Parks and Rec. She's the Amy Poehler character on Parks and Rec. And she's like a total hero of local government and makes you feel like that is absolutely the person should be president. So you can make the Leslie Nope argument for the mayor of South Bend that, you know, this is a person who has, is a public servant and is involved in local politics and like, go right ahead. And then, I don't know, I live in a city of about 115 or 20,000 people. It's only a little smaller than South Bend. I cannot imagine my mayor running for president, like any of the mayors oh, of New Haven on. in I, the history of the world. I don't know. I don't feel like the city of New Haven provides an adequate training but, ground for but the presidency. What did, Barack, what did Barack Obama have? Well, Barack he Obama was had a state senator and a senator, and actually, not, not for which, very long. No executive. And which of those experience. two? Which of those jobs is more is closer to the job you actually do as president? You think state senator? No, mayor. No. Oh, mayor. then, oh, mayor or state senator. Yeah. yeah, well, if you're a mayor, you're an executive. So in that sense, like, you're running a business. Um, so you think I'm just being snooty? No, no, no. I think it's, you're asking. It's okay. it's, no, it's, no. It's, it's a difficult, I mean, it's a difficult it's question. It's a central question. It's, because I, I don't, and I don't think really there's an answer for it. I mean, I know for myself, I have kind of come to believe that although the, some experience in public service is necessary, I think you people who, who the people who should be president ought to have like a broad sense of public spiritedness that beyond that, 
the presidents who have not been terrible, right, have all had certain qualities about right. them, right? It's not experience. It's sort of like openness and flexibility and creativity and all these things that they, they're able to apply to the job in a smart and politically yep. astute way. And I don't, that's something you can evaluate. That's something that isn't exclusive to people who have a ton of experience. And it's something that you can evaluate in many different ways. Right. And so there are many different kinds of experience and maybe some of the candidates have experiences that we haven't quite learned about that help us evaluate whether they have these qualities. But I also wouldn't say that the presence of experience is dispositive at all. Right. I think you want to know, I, uh, what I've always thought is more interesting is whether they've been tested. Because I think it's true that we all, when we're in a hairy situation, our ability to respond to it is, is informed by our previous experiences with awful experiences. So like when you're, when you're writing, right, there's always the like, oh my God, I, I just don't have it at all. But when you get o- a little older, of course you have that feeling acutely still, but there does it, it click where you're like, okay, I this am going to... This has happened before. I yeah, will survive. I'm going to manage this. It's not coming to me right now, but I will get there. And that's the product of having been in those tough situations before. So I think that... Now, do you Has need, Buttigieg been tested? Well, seven, eight months uh, in Afghanistan. Um, that's a real is test. He the so, only, is he the only veteran in this field? Swalwell. Uh, uh, Tulsi Gabbard oh, is the Tulsi other Gabbard. one. Oh. The field's massive, so you know (laughs) there's going to be someone else. There's no only anything, I guess. So I think we we could literally talk about this field from now until election day 2020, and but we we do have to move on with the show. But I want to ask one more question to you, John, which is what what are the things that we should look out for uh, that are going to shape this election in the coming months? Because it's 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 the phony war until. You know, till the Iowa caucuses. Or yeah. The, well, I think the it's. The f- I mean, it's always the phony war. We focus on because we have to, because the field has to winnow. Just because we, I mean, if it doesn't winnow, then you'll we'll have to just you know wait till the voting, which I actually wouldn't mind so much. But um, there's just a natural human tendency to want this conversation to get down to some manageable number of people. But the basic things are money, endorsements, which are. You know, they don't really matter, but they are some signaling to, 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 to suggest whether the person has any. Um, but we're in um, totally uncharted territory. I mean, think about Donald Trump. His endorser was Jeff Sessions, you know. Um, poor guy didn't really get much for that endorsement in the end. But, um, you know, so, so we could see somebody blazing an entirely new path. I mean, I think, though, when you think about Donald Trump, you have to also acknowledge the role in the media of all of this, right? I mean, when you start making like this sort of special something like who gets to decide that actually like we or someone um, has a lot of outsized influence in determining that because we lift people up for good reasons and bad and it's pretty mercurial and random. I think that's true but Buttigieg to the extent that he puts his finger on a moment it's his answers in the CNN uh, town hall with Tapper I think and lots of other candidates uh, have 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 done those and the response has not been the same um, in the viewership, and also now that people can pass stuff around on their own, that we're not the mediators of that. People are doing that on their own. Sure. Let's go to cocktail chatter when you're sitting around in a Virginia tavern and you strike up a conversation with the person to your left at the bar. John Dickerson, what will you be chattering about? So my chatter is about the black hole um, that was photographed this week. I know, right? Amazing. So before we get to the actual chatter, first of all, 
on the when you see pictures of it, you think, oh, it's like the size of a planet, right? There it is. This, it's the size of our galaxy. That's a huge thing that I can't wrap my head around. The second thing, we call it a black hole because of the light, but the thing is time. I keep reading about the, the black hole takes time and it crumples it all up into a tiny little thing, which as I say that makes me think, I'm gonna order a double because, <laughs> because who knows when the great crumpling is gonna happen. Uh, so, you know, so anyway, so that's, but what, I don't think what, you're at the bar. I think you're at the dispensary. Yeah. <laughs> I would be into this conversation. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, but that's not my chatter. My ch- well, my chatter is about this, which is that, um, so the, the, Einstein's general theory of relativity was, opens the idea to a bla- the black hole. And I have had my own theory about a black hole, which is slightly less well known. Um, <laughs> And it, is, and it is this, which is that journalism should be thought of the way scientists thought of black holes. Stay with me here. Um, scientists didn't know what black holes were. They kind of had some general notions, and then they used that broken flashlight to go try and figure stuff out. And as they were looking, they knew it was imperfect, but they thought, well, we're going to accumulate things, and if we are proved wrong in some of the things we think, that's great, because it limits the number of possibilities out there to explain this phenomenon. And it was an excitement to find out new things, even if they were wrong. In journalism, if you say something and have a provisional notion and it turns out not to be true, then people say it undermines the entire enterprise. It's just not the way it should be thought of. And the reason this really matters is kind of two reasons. One, when, when there's journalism about something and then the thing doesn't turn out to be exactly as it was reported, let's say the Mueller report, there's a kind of overreaction and a claim that basically the underlying assessments were all totally wrong. Well, that's not the case. They were provisional and they, were adjust, they should adjust to new information. Uh, so anyway, I tried this theory out on Carlo Rovelli, who is the, one of the greatest, if not the greatest theoretical physicist at the moment. And he said, you know, the thing about Einstein was the greatest, he was the greatest mind ever. You could write a whole book of his mistakes because he was fearless about being wrong, which was one of my great, what was Michael Kinsley's uh, quote for Slate? Oh, there used to be on the Slate t-shirt, it it said, uh, unashamed of embarrassing failures since 1996. Oh yeah, yeah, Um, that was good. And I've always loved this idea of collateral error, and it's, in other words, the error is the product of your joyful pursuit and serious pursuit of things, but you're sometimes gonna be totally wrong. Well, Einstein, it turns out, was wrong about black holes. He was right about the fact that they might exist, but when he was asked if they could ever figure out if they were true and anything more than theoretical, he said, no, I don't think so. And so he was actually wrong. He said it was not convincing that they could, um, that they could actually exist and the phenomena really didn't exist in the real world. So he opened the door to them, but then was essentially wrong about them in the end. So, and there's obviously a difference between being wrong in the pursuit of something and thinking that windmills cause cancer, right? <laughs> so one, one is the whetstone for critical thinking and the other is the court of, sort of the epistemological equivalent of sweatpants, sweatpants where the string is gone and they've pulled around your ankles. <laughs> so I'm not, I'm not suggesting that it's just any old random theory. And then finally, what I love about what I love about I this... I definitely know what John Stormroom was like now. <laughs> so I'm, br- I'm coming home Is now to the end Is he trying to get here. on the elevator while <laughs> this happened? 
Sorry. So, but but I think it's a, because people will think like, oh, well, you're okay with being wrong while well, you're not being serious. No, it's the byproduct of actually intensively focusing on something, but recognizing that the entirety of human experience can't be figured out in one second and that things are provisional. Finally, well, the other great thing about Einstein was that he was fine with uncertainty, right? And the idea that he just didn't know things and that was okay. So I, um, uh, I interviewed Glenda Jackson, this, the great actress who's playing King Lear, and she told me a story about uncertainty and um, Laurence Olivier, which um, is the opposite of Einstein, but was of great, my favorite story of the week, which is that um, apparently Laurence Olivier was playing Othello at the Old Vic, and he gave just a beautiful performance. Jackson said it was so beautiful, the other actors forgot their cues because they were so captivated by the performance he was giving. It ended, there was lots of applause, it was in England, so there were not standing ovations, but everybody went crazy. He goes back into his dressing room and they hear him breaking things and swearing and, and, and busting up the place, so they send in some young person to say, um, Sir Lawrence, if he was a sir by then, he might not have been, but um, you were amazing tonight, and he said, yes, I know, but I don't know why. <laughs> so, he was not able to live with the uncertainty of his greatness. Emily. <laughs> what's, Emily, what's your chatter? Do you want to follow that? Do you could be, to? you could just be, be Great quick. Great thing to follow it. All right. Yeah. So I have a very different mood, which is, so there's so many just awful stories that circulate, and I usually try not to let them really get under my skin, but this story about this um, 11-year-old girl from El Salvador named Laura Maradiaga really got to me today. So this is a, a little girl who... Um, came here seeking asylum with her mother and her 15-year-old sister, and the immigration authorities accidentally left her name off of the form that was being used to process the asylum application. So she went to immigration court with her mother and her sister and learned that she was going to be deported because of this administrative error when her mother and sister's applications could proceed. Um, and I just, the idea that this little girl is going to go home by herself to, and it sounded like there was, you know, real violence that they were fleeing, specific gang violence that had been a threat. And then, so that was a horrible image in itself. I worried about that. And then, of course, thinking about this family having to make a choice whether this mother would leave her 15-year-old here or go home with her younger daughter. And then, of course, they had a press conference to talk about this, which is why I know about it, why we would all know about it. And this is our recourse, right? Like, this is where we are when um, the immigration system is so broken. All you can do is hope that your own individual case will somehow um, be shown mercy because you've generated enough sympathy and then I thought to myself, well, that should work. But then I thought, like, well, really, maybe not. Like, in a previous eras, you would think immediately the immigration authorities would just, like, make an announcement, no, we're not deporting this 11-year-old named Laura by herself. But I'm not even sure it will work now. And it just seemed somehow in itself so emblematic of um, how dismaying and um, cruel our immigration system has become. Jamel. No applause. <laughs> Jamel, what's your chatter? My chatter. So we're in the sesquicentennial of Reconstruction. Um, uh, we're 150 years removed from 1869. We're still kind of in the heat of it. And PBS is airing a great new documentary series on Reconstruction. And I highly recommend people watch it. 
it's sort of a who's who of American historians, historians tackling Reconstruction um, uh, from all sorts of, of angles. But uh, I guess my, my chatter is to to emphasize the importance of really delving into this period of time. Um, I think for Americans concerned about the direction of the country today, the fear that we're sort of losing any commitment to substantive, substantive equality between people of different races, of different backgrounds, that Reconstruction can both serve as a example of the worst of what can happen, but also an example of the best of what can happen. There's a quote from um, W.E.B. Du Bois's Black Reconstruction that I will read because I think it kind of sums up um, uh, sort of what makes this this period of her history so enrapturing and so valuable. Uh, du Bois wrote, writes, the most magnificent drama in the last thousand years of human history is the transportation of 10 million human beings out of the dark beauty of their mother continent into the newfound El Dorado of the West. They descended into hell, and in the third century they arose from the dead in the finest effort to achieve democracy for the working millions which this world has ever seen. And Reconstruction, thinking of it as an attempt of Americans who've just experienced a horrific trauma of trying to build the finest democracy this country's ever seen, is something I think we can take to heart today and can help guide us as we think about what's gonna happen for our future. So my chatter, um, my chatter is really gonna, more or less, it's partly gonna be in the form of a quiz. So Mayor Pete, everyone's excited about Mayor Pete. And I love mayors, everyone knows I love Mayor Bloomberg, I have always, believe that executive office is the best qualification for the presidency, which is why I hate those senators who are constantly nominating themselves. And we've, of course, we've had tons of governors who have been president. Um, and the question is, like, have we had tons of mayors who've been president? And, and mayors have to deal with real problems. They have to deal with, you know, they have to deal with their own city councils, with legislatures. They have to deal with the dirtiest aspects of politics. They have to almost always deal with media in an intense way, all great tests for the presidency. And this uh, democratic field, which has lots of everything, has indeed lots of mayors. It has Cory Booker, it was mayor of Newark, it has Julian Castro, it's Mayor Pete, it might have de Blasio, it might even have Bloomberg. And so I wanted to see how mayors performed as presidents to kind of confirm my bias. And so my question is, John Dickerson, how many mayors have been president of the United States? Oh, God. Was Cleveland mayor of Buffalo? Yes. Oh, my God. Yeah. Wait, how do you know? That. That's ludicrous. I even I knew that one. Got, got him. You. I did not know that, like at all, at all. I think I want to stop there. Uh, <laughs> and he was twice elected, so. Oh God. Uh, ma, ma, where's my pa? Um, uh, he ran in 1884 and, against James okay. G. Blaine. Okay, all right, all right. We're not talking about Cleveland. The Does anyone a liar from the state yeah, of Maine? Any, um, any, all right. Hold on. What do you, Jamel? What do you think the over/under? How many mayors do you think have been president? I'm going to say I'm going to say two. I was going to go with three because I figured there were two. That and who's right? Emily is right. Hold on. Oh, that Hold was on. a miracle. Who, it's going to be somebody that had been mayor or came directly out of the mayor's no, office. No, had been mayor at all. Yeah, it was, only it was three. One of the one of the Roosevelt's was mayor of New York. Uh, nope. New, no. No. Uh-huh. I was so, thinking of Taft, but that's no, just random. It's, it's totally weird. It was I was shocked. So it's really embarrassing. So, so Cleveland Cleveland was mayor of Buffalo. He was only mayor for eight months though. Hmm. And and uh, immediately went off and became governor and was president within a couple of years after that. Uh, the other two 
Calvin Coolidge was mayor of Northampton, Mass. for a year. And apparently he increased teacher salaries. Um, but that was, a, that was a city of 19,000 people, and there were 1,500 people who voted for him. That's, that was his, his uh, first experience as mayor. And the other one is Andrew Johnson, huh. who was mayor, oh. he was mayor for two years of Greenville, Tennessee, which had a population of 600 at the time. So you have to move on now to you governors. Be, you yeah, there are tons of governors. And, it, it's, and so basically, if, if we have, you know, Mayor Pete is elected, he's, he's got more mayoral experience than all the rest of our previous presidents combined, who've served a total Which of really four years. really tells us nothing, I think. Yeah. That is our show for today. The Political Gap Fest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researchers, Bridget Dunlap, June Thomas is the managing producer of Slate Audio. Gabriel Roth is director of audio. Faith Smith put together this live show. Thank you to the TomTom Tom Festival for inviting us to the Paramount Theater for having us. You can follow us on Twitter at, at SlateGabFest. For Emily Bazelon, John Dickerson, and Jamel Bowie, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Hi, Slate Plus. So we have any questions? There are mics up here. So let's just say you're crazy. And uh, maybe Trump is not your favorite candidate for the next election. <laughs> I've heard two schools of thought. You either vote for somebody that you actually, that uh, adheres to your moral code, or do you vote for the candidate that is just going to beat Trump? So I'd like to know, for you, what's better for society long-term, not short-term, long-term? Do we vote our moral code, or do we vote for what's going to get Trump out of office. Jamel? Um, if, if we're just talking the Democratic primary, I think you should vote whoever you think would be the best president. I don't really think there's any other option than that because for my part, it's sort of difficult to know how it's all going to shake out. And so rather than trying to game it or be a pundit, think, what, think about what you care about and vote for the candidate who um, you think would make the best person in office. Now, come the general election, this will all depend on what you think the, what you think Trump means for American democracy. If you think Trump means like heralds sort of like a deterioration of American democracy, then I think that you have an obligation in that case just to vote for whoever's going to beat Trump. Someone's going to be president, right? At the end of the day, one of two people is going to be president, and if you don't want it to be Donald Trump, then the only option is to vote for the per the person who is going most likely to be president. So. Over here. So we've seen a lot of um, unprecedented things in the past couple of years. Um, so I've been thinking about um, what uh, Michael Cohen and Bill Maher and a handful of other people have been saying. Like, if this guy loses, is he going to leave? Like, is he like firing all the people who might be able to make him leave? I like. I would like to believe that come January, you know, twenty first, twenty twenty one, like noon, Secret Service drags him out, and you know, it's over. But I, this with everything that's been happening, I'm not convinced that that could happen. I could very easily see him declaring a national emergency or goading Iran or North Korea into attacking. And then, oh, it's an emergency. You gotta, it, or, and also does talking about it, like give him the ideas, which it does not, not talk about it. <laughs> what do you think? I don't think talking about it, giving him ideas is a big concern. I mean, look, I um, am hanging on to my faith that if there is a fundamental core threat to American democracy, like, the system is going to um, figure out how to expel it. Um, and 
to, you know, not a perfect degree, but to a fairly solid degree so far, both um, the sort of apparatus of the federal government and the courts have been performing that role. Now, you know, the courts will have more Trump appointees on them by the time we get to that moment, but there will still be a lot of people who feel like they have to do their job. And something so blatant as refusing to turn over power in an election, I want to reserve my faith that the American system would expel that. We'll see. What do you think is the probability of any future indictments, non-Mueller indictments of anybody in the Trump group? I think good, right? For the okay. Southern District and... Yeah, the all Southern the, District still work in the way. Right. So all, how many, there are 13 other um, activities outside of the federal, is that right? Is it, so 13, there's undoubtedly going to be some Yeah, some I think legal. there'll be some indictments. I'm not sure if they're going to get any closer to President Trump than they have. I was really struck about how definitive you were that Joe Biden would not be the Democratic candidate. And it seemed to be a consensus on the panel. And I really would love a greater explanation of why you have that certainty. Well, I'll hazard that just because I think I said it, which is that he's run for president before a couple of times. Hey, GabFesters, that was just a tease. To hear more, go to slate.com slash GabFestPlus. For the ones who know safety isn't a catchphrase, it's a culture. And the ones who help make sure everyone makes it home safe. For the safety-minded who watch everyone's backs, Granger offers supplies and solutions for every industry, as well as safety assessments and training to keep your facilities safe and your people safer. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.